Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. Ian Flanagan is founder and group CEO of Volley Group, the only multi-currency accounting software designed specifically for the yachting industry. From humble beginnings, expansion has taken Volley Group to provide accounting software for the management of multi-assets, such as property, aircraft, and other family office assets. The recent launch of Volley Music extends that offering to the music industry. A former professional tennis player, Ian won gold at the Youth Olympics, before going on to reach the last 16 in the Stella Artois Championship at Queen's Club. In that same summer, he reached a third round at Wimbledon, including playing his first round match on the Sacred Centre Court at the All England Club, before injury cut his career short. So what's the story behind the story? Without further ado, let's get into it. Ian Flanagan. Hi, welcome to the Extrology podcast. Great to have you as my guest today and really looking forward to getting stuck into not only all things tennis and sporting careers, but equally as importantly business and and the world of volley. But before we get into, into life as it is today, I've always, as always, like to start with the early days. So tell me, where was where did you grow up? What was childhood like for you? Uh, childhood was, was awesome, to be honest. I thought actually about this before we did it and I'm very fortunate, I think. I've got an unbelievable mum and dad, a good, stable family, which um, I think some people take for granted, but I was really lucky with that. Mum and dad were originally from Liverpool and moved out to live in Wales. So I was born in North Wales, which, um, which not many people do know, and lived in a small village called Greenwood, which is just outside Ruthin. And yeah, I had, a, I had an amazing childhood, kind of suburban, well, kind of just a local kind of small village, you know, a little local park, played football every night played football most mornings. And yeah, I was lucky. I was really lucky to have a really good childhood, to be fair. I, I probably take for granted, but yeah, that was my childhood. And, and do you, you say family, Were you brothers, sisters, you've big family? Yeah, one brother, one older brother, Steve, who, yeah, helped me along with my tennis days, which I'm sure we'll come on to. But yeah, one brother, mum and dad, and, and yeah, he um, he certainly dragged me along from a, from a sporting point of view because all we did was, he's seven, six or seven years older than me, and all we did was play sport. Literally, the minute we got home from school, it was just sport, sport, sport. Um, he played tennis also to a pretty decent level, and um, yeah, it was um, yeah it was a competitive from day one, really. Fantastic. So, who were the you know the posters on the wall? Who were the heroes as a child growing up? Who did you look up to? Do you know, what? I never really had one when I was first got into tennis. Agassi was probably the closest it came to post on the wall. He was kind of following the kind of Becker Edberg era. Edberg stood out probably. There's a, there's a bit of a story there that one of my first ever trips to Wimbledon. Tony Pickard, who was a coach, I wasn't even a name in tennis at the time. I was probably six or seven years old, hanging outside the kind of the the practice court area, and um and yeah, Tony Pickard took a shine to me for some reason. And said, "Look, do you want to come and meet Stefan?" And before you knew it, he, he kind of took me in backstage and, and introduced me to Edberg. But I, I literally must have been six or seven years old. So kind of from that stage on, I always supported Stefan Edberg if he was in the final something against Becker. But there was no real post on the wall. But kind of Edberg and Agassi would be the two that I followed the most. Would he have been Wimbledon champion at that point? Uh, good question. He'd have been, yeah, I mean, he, yeah, probably. I guess he wasn't at that stage probably, but yeah, Edberg would have been or, or close to. He was certainly in the top, you know, him and Becker, a guy called Michael Stick, German guy. They would yeah. they would probably have been the three kind of a four top players at the time. And then obviously I guess he's Sampras kind of started to encroach into the area and then obviously dominated for the next kind of 10 years or the next decade. So interested how you got into tennis because if I look back on, you know, some similarities, I'm the, I'm the elder, I've got a younger brother, albeit we're only 18 months apart, but we were both sports mad as kids, spent most of our time kicking a ball around somewhere, playing cricket in the street, whatever it might have been. And we would pick up, remember we used to have a couple of wooden tennis rackets and we used to jib over the school fence and play on, there was a couple of concrete courts on the, at our local school. We used to jump over the fence and play, but only typically, we just loved all sports, but we'd pick up a racket perhaps around about the time of Wimbledon, which if, if I look back, they were just about, the only real tennis we would have seen on TV, it felt like as a kid, but that two weeks in the summer, we'd go and hit a ball around, but we weren't really that into, how did you get into tennis? So Steve played and Steve was playing like a tennis, it was a Yamaha, if you can remember that brand in tennis, a Yamaha day with Mark Cox and Amber Croft. And it was 
pelting down in rain, and I must have been four, three or four, watching with my mum. And um, Annabelle Croft again, kind of when there was a break, kind of said, "Look, do you want to go?" And the story goes, I don't know how true it is, but the story I hear from mum and dad was she threw a ball to me and apparently I hit it back first time and she was like, well, can you do that again? And then I hit a few more back first time at kind of that age. And then a local lady called Margaret Lewis, who's an unbelievable lady who who even then would have been probably 60, 70 years old, held a kind of a little short tennis like school slash camp after school. And she then came and spoke to mum and said, um, look, you've clearly got an eye for the ball. Can we can we interest you in bringing him? And because Steve was kind of would have been 11, probably 10, 11, and was playing probably North Wales and locally for clubs and stuff. And then I, I went down to my first short tennis class, and then literally the rest is history. I then started playing it two, three times a week, got completely infatuated, obsessed with it. Like you read these stories, you know, about Roy McElroy hitting golf balls. I was hitting balls all day against the bedroom wall, against the, you know, like you say, you find anything you can. So me and Steve used to create in the in the kind of the shed almost. We created a little kind of mini tennis court, and we went go down there for hours and fight like cat and dog about who was winning. But um, but yeah, I got into it because my brother watching my brother then, and then after that, that's when mum and dad gave up their life really, and that's when I started playing tennis three or four days a week. And you know, as you get older, it becomes more of an obsession, and you play more, and it becomes more professionalised and stuff. But yeah, that's how I got into it. And had they played? Is that how your brother had gotten into the sport? No, they played a little bit, but social tennis at a local tennis club was it, and um, they'd kill me for saying this, but yeah, there were no real, no good, but they played in <laughs> a social game on a, maybe a Sunday afternoon with a few friends and a few drinks after, but no, they'd never played any level of tennis at all. So am I right in thinking, you know, you had a fairly meteoric rise. I mean, I, I can imagine it would have been a lot of blood, sweat and tears to get there, but a fairly meteoric rise to the point at which by, am I right, in a, age 15 at the Youth Olympics, you, you won gold medal at the youth olympics and, and did you reach number one in the world in terms of ranking at 15 they had all sorts of different rankings so i'd probably be two to say number one would probably be stretching it but i was one of the top in the world i was one at one stage on ranking they did it by tournament right so yeah i won a bunch of the they had a world event in france when i was 11 12 that i won again funny story for some reason they decided to give all the international players anyone that won they gave a mountain bike to it's like the first mountain bike with 21 gears try getting that back on a plane by the way at 13 years old but yeah, I was I was one of the top in the world from the age of kind of twelve to, to fifteen, sixteen, on and off, and and all the, the usual suspects that you you would have seen on the tour, you know, Roddick, Federer, Leighton Hewitt, all those guys were playing. The Youth Olympic final, we beat in the mix. We beat Justine Henning, who went on to win God Hammy Grand Slam. So yeah, I was um, I was number one in Britain certainly, and then I was I was one of the top in the world. Yeah. And at what point did you start to think, did it go from being, I mean, I, I, I'd recognise that com- there's a competitiveness, you've already alluded to it in that shared games with your brother, but at what point did you think, hey, do you know what, I might be able to make a, or I will make a career f- of this? At what point did that sort of realisation dawn? I guess at 14, 15, you kind of start thinking about it because, you know, you're in that typical classroom discuss you know what do you want to be when you're older and I was um I wanted to be a, a professional tennis player probably from the age of 14 15 believe it or not I actually in in PE you had to choose like athletics gymnastics I think was compulsory which I got a pretty bad score football I think I got 50 and I actually got 13 out of 15 for tennis even though I'd won youth olympic gold the teacher said my technique was no good on my forehand you believe that? Yeah, I can. To which, 10 years later, when I then hit a bit of a limelight, and I was like, getting asked, there was a queue of people asking for my autograph at Nottingham Open. And I said, what school are you from? They were clear from school, and they were from my school. And the teacher that had brought them to watch me play at the Nottingham Open in front of, I don't know, 5,000 people was actually the teacher that only gave me 13 out of 15 at tennis. Did so you, did I had you a, remind I had him? a little moment with her. <laughs> yeah, I did remind her. But from like 13, 14, 15, and I kind of could, I could, I knew there would potentially be a career. And, and maybe you're right, maybe in my head it was like, focused I'm only gonna go and play tennis but um but yeah at that age you you kind of know and as you start getting invited contracts start coming for sponsorship and you know you're getting picked up from management companies and agencies you kind of know that you've probably got something about you to do okay so that was probably the age when I thought this could be a career and and what sort of encouragement was there a sort of because inf- if I look back I'm just reflecting on some experience I wanted to be I was you know I remember a conversation with my headmaster when I'd have been about 14 or 15 in a corridor at school, what are you going to do when you leave school? And I said, I'm going to be a footballer, sir. And he laughed. I was a half decent footballer playing, you know, good, good standard of football. But I remember, and he was absolutely hundred percent down the line academic, but he said, no, 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 that's not for you. 
interesting. So I didn't really get, you know, there was no encouragement from uh, from anyone in my school. Um, certainly there was from outside, but was there sort of an influential figure that, that really pushed you or took you through to achieve what you were able to achieve? Yeah, I had um, I had all the same as you just said. I had teachers saying I was a pretty decent footballer as well and was on a few decent clubs, books and stuff at that age and chose tennis because it was the, the I kind of had to choose and the Olympics was the one that swung me when I went to play the Olympics. But I did exactly the same. I had all the teachers saying, you'll never make it in tennis. You won't make it in football. You know, you, you need to go and do the academic thing. But I had a guy called John Hicks who was my tennis coach from the age 12 to on and off all my career really at different stages. But he was just a really inspirational kind of when he was coaching me to be 55, 60, he had a national squad that was kind of a GB training academy in Wrexham. And he'd have probably been the one outside of my dad and my mum that were kind of obviously really influential and pushed me. He'd have probably been the one that kind of always gave me belief. Like people always said about John, about Hicksy, that he never really helped you with technique, but he made you feel a million dollars. You know, even if you weren't playing well, he would tell you, oh, you're going to, you know, you could be Agassi today, you're hitting the ball so well. You know, he just, he was a real motivator. And he'd have probably been the guy that kind of, that pushed me to to go for it probably as I say outside of my parents he'd have been the one that had a, a big impact on my life and you mentioned the Olympics there which I'm, I was going to say in terms of high spots were coming to Queens and, and Wimbledon and, and some of the experiences that you would have enjoyed there but was as a as a youth player I would imagine that Olympic experience was was huge it was unreal I wish I could remember more of it to be fair because obviously when you're when you're kind of 13 you don't remember as much of it but it was yeah, it was amazing. Arriving in the in the halls of residence, it was at Bath. I mean, every other year it'd be Sydney and all the different great places around the world. But when I played, it was in Bath. And um, you know, you arrived in your halls, you you went into a room where they, you know, you walked along a, a conveyor belt of kit, and you got your GB tracksuit, and you know, you got all your your GB Olympic team tracks, which I've still got. And the opening ceremony was a huge affair, a three hour kind of. They replicate the Olympics, you know. It's exactly it ran exactly the same. They had the torch coming in, they had the flags going in. Um, and there was a bunch of people that went on to do other things in, in other sports. Dwayne Chambers, I think, won the 100-metre junior Olympic gold when I did it. And there's a bunch of other people that did it. But <coughs> it was just an amazing... I, I can't remember, and I should remember, I think it was Princess Anne maybe gave me my gold medal, but Princess Anne or Princess Margaret, my mum and dad, I don't know, but gave me my gold medal. And then I was one of the chosen eight gold medalists that then took the flag out of the out of the stadium, so the GB flag when it came down. I was one of the, the, the eight that took it out. So it was a phenomenal experience. And I, and I wish I could remember more of it because... Um, it was sensational at the time. I know that. And do you remember your first match as a professional? No, probably not. I mean, I, I guess it kind of classes when I, so when I was 15, 16, I then got glandular fever, which took me out of the game for two and a half years. And I was really poorly with it. And I guess my first professional game properly would have been when I came back from that. But no, I can't remember. I mean, it was, it was a medley of events all around the world. Then, you know, you start traveling and, and you, you travel the world. And I can't remember my first one. And that glandular, you mentioned glandular, that itself must have been a difficult period having, you know, I suppose gotten to a point where clearly you had, you know, some significant talent and you could, I would imagine you could start to see dreams for me thinking, actually, I could make, you know, I could make a go of this. I could be really successful at this. And all of a sudden it gets snatched away from you for something that's entirely outside of your control. It must have been a very difficult period. You must have been fraught with all sorts of kind of, what do I do now? you know, all that kind of uncertainty around what the future looks like must have been difficult. Yeah, it was really hard. I mean, I was took to hospital, I couldn't breathe. It really hit me. I couldn't breathe in my throat. They say it closed the size of a pea. So I was, I was really bad at it. I think from what I remember, I had about a year off or a year and a half off. And then I remember I had a coach that I'd employed and I tried to go back on court an academy in Liverpool where he, he was working now. And after an hour, I was just toast or half an hour, probably, I was just toast, felt like I was going to faint. And I had all the same symptoms. I had more time off. And you're right. But the issue you have is then when you come back, you know, Nike that we sponsor, they've disappeared because <laughs> you now got to start from the rung again. And then, you know, your racket sponsors have disappeared. And I mean, the L chain, I always had, I always had loggerheads, which you can probably read about online, but I was always at loggerheads with the L chain anyway. So they, they were kind of not on the radar before or after. But yeah, you start from a fresh, right? You're then, you're then not hot property in the world of sport. You are, you know, you're, you're in and let's see what happens when you come back. So it was a real hard task and you've got, you know, you've worked from the rafters. I don't know exactly how many people play professional tennis, but it's something ridiculous, like 30,000 people were playing it as a job or some, it was a huge figure. And that's where you start, right? You pick up your racket again and you practice for six months and you get yourself until you, you match ready and you're then number 29,999 or, or whatever that figure was. I just remember it being a big figure. And and yeah, it was tough and, and you've got to have a lot of belief to believe you can then go and do it again. And that was a, a hard task. 
And and had you that belief? Was that something that you'd you'd grown up with? Or you'd obviously had some results that would have reinforced that view. But I guess again, you have all sorts of questions going through your mind to question that that direction of travel. Yeah, I guess I must have had some belief to do it again. It was either that or the lack of um, will to go and get a proper job was probably half of it. But no, I must have had some belief. And I think I had some half-decent results when I first came back on court, which kind of then gave me probably a little bit more belief. But yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a treacherous time, as I say. It was, it was being off court for two, two and a half years and, and not being able to do anything, really. I mean, literally at the start, I couldn't... If I left upstairs to go down to get a drink because Dad worked and and stuff, I was too tired to get back up the stairs. So I then would sleep a couple of hours or five hours on the sofa because I was just too knackered to get even get start getting up the stairs again. So it was a tough time, but I got through it. And, you know, people go through far worse. So if that's the worst thing that happens in my life, then I'm quite fortunate. And highlights from a career highlights from a professional tennis perspective. I've read of, of you know, the example of beating Mark Philippoussis at Queens and, and playing doubles at Wimbledon and all those. I mean, what were the highlights from your perspective? It has to be that. I mean, yes, Olympic gold, there's some junior stuff that was less publicised, you know, winning some big events as a junior were great. And and also less kind of around the achievement, but just the travelling was amazing. Like to be able to, I think I've played tennis in 67 or 68 different countries. And to be to be lucky enough, you know, to be 13, 14, 15 years old and go to Spain and Russia and, you know, Bulgaria and the States and to do all that would be a highlight, even though it's not so much an achievement. But then, yeah, the pinnacle, which probably most people know me for is I qualified for the Stellar Tri-Champions in 2004 and I'd had a really good week the week before at Surbiton where I beat a few decent names and then I went to um, yeah and then I went to Queens and I beat Joe Wilford Songa who went on to become world number top 10 um, I beat Zimanich who'd beaten Agassi the week before and then I qualified and there's actually a, another story that that I'd love to share because he, he was, a, he was a, a really important person in my life but I met a guy playing a celebrity golf tournament when I was about 19, 20. And I was asked to play this tournament. I met a guy who had sadly lost his wife to breast cancer. His name was Derek Barnett. And he offered to sponsor me. And I was like, no, no, you're drunk. Like at the end of the dinner, I'm not accepting it. And then his, his son said, um, no, you've, you've got to let my dad sponsor you. He, you know, he can afford it. He wants to sponsor you. You need it. He needs it because it will give him a focus in life. So um, almost makes me emotional to talk about it. So then I went to them. I went and beat Songa to qualify for Queens. So Derek sponsored me for two years and his passion was always, Ian, just do me a favour, if you ever get onto a big court, can I come and sit in the you know the player's box and watch it? So I ended up beating Songa and then I got drawn against Philippoussis on the main show court at Queens. So I drove down to East Grinstead where he lived, which is outside of London, without any surprise. So look, I'm playing tomorrow and um, I'd love you to come. And he was bowled over, obviously. He was upset because he was so proud of what, he, what I'd done. And um, he came and watched me the next day and I beat Philippoussis. And we went out for dinner that evening and he gave me, um, he gave me a, a, a bit of money. And I was like, what's this for? He said, well, I had a bet on you. He said, like, you were nine to one or 16 to one. Because Philippoussis, when I beat him, I think it was world number six and women were finest and one of the biggest names in sport. So I beat him and he gave me this money. And I said, um, I said what's that for? He said, I've had a bet on you. you were, I think it was nine to one or 12 to one. I just thought it was worth it. And I, obviously I wouldn't. And then I went out the next day and I beat Hanescu, who was about 30 in the world. And that night, dinner, he gave me more money. I was like, what, like, did you bet on me against I put the lot on you? He said, I thought, well, it's all profit, I had a lot on you. So I beat Hanescu, and I'm in the last 16 or quarters, last 16 or whatever round, I lost him. And I played Sebastian Grosjean, and completely, I mean, I was stupid. I did GMTV in the morning at 7am, because I was, it was like being Beckham for a week, right? You're 21 years old. As you said rightly before, the whole world becomes a tennis fan during Wimbledon and, and Queens and etc. So there was paps everywhere, and I was getting invited to do all these TV shows. And I just did everything. So I'd done GMTV stupidly. I was knackered. I played Grosjean, sent a court of Queens and lost. Anyway, I go for dinner that night and he gives me more money. And I said, what's this for now? He said, well, you were never winning today. So I put it all on Grosjean, <laughs> <laughs> which was lovely, bless him. And he was so candid. He, he told me straight away. But um, but yeah, he was a lovely bloke. And when you go back to inspirational people and people, are, you know, he showed faith in me and we became really close friends and he supported me for a long time. So, um, but yeah, but going back to your original question, the highlight would have been Queens and then, I went to Wimbledon. They never gave me a wild card that year because they, the LCA had a whole different story. But um, I then was due, I played doubles at Wimbledon that year and we were due to play on court 17, I think it was. And because I was in the public eye, but because of what I'd done the week before, centre court had finished early. So then the BBC said, we want Ian Flanagan's double match on centre. So then you got the knock on the change room saying, right, you're next on centre, which was a, a hell of a shock. And um, and yeah, that was amazing to play to play there. It was It was a, you know, 15 or whatever the thousand people were there and it's still pretty full because of what I'd done and that would be the next highlight so they would probably be my highlights Queen's Wimbledon Olympic gold and then um, 
and then yeah, the, just the just the place we went to. And and in terms of the end to your tennis career, was it was injury that? Well, I think it was injury that ultimately brought about calling it a day. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, done that and got really high in the rankings for from a point of view the yearly rankings because in tennis you had two different types of rankings: the rolling ones and the euros. I think I was I was high that year. I don't know what what I was, but I, I think I went to top hundred. I think for that week. But um, for the on the champions race, I think they called it. But yeah, it was literally four weeks after that, my elbow just caved in, and I probably tried to play too long. Really, I tried to live the dream for too long, as in I didn't want the dream to end, and I, I carried on trying to play for 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 too long. But I just couldn't straighten my elbow, and that's obviously no good. So I was offered an operation that would have, would have been a new operation, and there was no guarantee it was going to work. And yeah, the sense of realization comes at some stage, right? You've got to decide what you're going to do, and, and that was it. And, and do you remember the range of emotions that you must have gone through at that point when you knew that actually things would be would be coming to a close? Because I think any professional sport, or most virtually all professional sports, it's such a short-lived yeah. reality, isn't it? Such a short-lived career. The, the range of emotions that you might, can you remember those? And how do you remember them? Yeah, I went, I went through all the stuff you'd expect, really. Anger, sadness, disappointment, then belief, because you then, I think probably I didn't really hit, it didn't really hit me as hard as it would have hit most because, I tried to carry on, as I say, too long. So I kind of thought, well, if I have a month off, then I'll go and play one event. So I never really just did a, right, today's the day. Even when I stopped playing, I then turned up for an event about four months later thinking, you know what, I might just go, my elbow feels all right today. I might go and get, give it a bash. So I went and played a couple of um, lower-ranked events. But I think because it was spread out, I never really felt a one-day pain of, that's the end. But yeah, it's it's hard. But, you know, I, again, going back to my point before, there's, there's people with, with bigger problems in the world than just you know your, your career ending. So I, I sat there, reflected, and then went on to do other things. And, and how long a period of reflection before you knew, okay, before you had that sort of, right, I now know what I'm going to do. I'm clear that perhaps it's whatever it might be in business. Whatever, at what point do you remember there was there a sort of eureka moment where you go, okay, this is it. This is what I'm going to now go do. No, it was a long, again, a long period of, I've always been, I think people would say pretty good at networking and pretty entrepreneurial and pretty kind of, you know, understood how to make money. And I think I went through a period of time where I tried different things, some of it in events, you know, because I've getting the natural phone call of, can you get me women tickets? Can you get me golf tickets? I want to go to the master stuff. So that was my first progression. Then I went into different things, insurance and property and and dabbled with a, a bunch of other things. And then it was through an investment in a foreign exchange business that then kind of it then struck where I did have the Eureka moment thinking, hang on, like you start to understand what the banks are charging for, for foreign exchange. And then you put that with the yachting space you're in and you see what, how that works. And then the software came along secondary, but yeah, that's when the kind of volley was the first Eureka moment where I thought, right, I now know where all the little stuff I'm doing and all the stuff that kind of was probably unprofessional would be the right word and just done to make a living and dipped in and out of different things. That's when volley came that I then thought this is a, this is now the time that I'm going to give my life. So blood, sweat and tears to, so what, so what was the inspiration behind Volley? It was doing the FX. So we were, we were trading the FX for, through again, through having an investment in an FX place, we, we were trading FX for some super yachts. And it kind of just triggered home that the boats are like small and mid-cap businesses, right? They're, you know, some of the biggest boats are spending a, a lot of money on their budgets, as you can imagine when you see them floating around the world and they've got crew, et cetera. And it was from seeing that, that I remember a, a captain saying to me, can you create an accounting solution? because there was no real accounting solution that was specific to yachting. And they were doing, they called it lick and stick, where they put the receipts on A4 piece of paper, scan it through and sending it through unsecured Gmail and all the different things that they were doing. And his exact word where you need to stick a captain, a developer and a accountant in a room for six months and then you you know build something and, and you could make a real nice business. And I spoke to a good friend of mine and he told me, and you've got to have deep pockets for software and you know, et cetera, et cetera. And my pockets probably weren't deep enough, which I've, I've since learned that was true. And then we... um. We met a, a boat captain by pure fluke. We met a boat captain who had built a system for just his boat with his partner, who was like a, a kind of accountant, should we say, and very good friend of the developer. So we took a look at it, and um, and being frank, you know, we, we just thought this could work, and we bought it. At that stage, it was a very basic expense management, but I'd had the experience, maybe the entrepreneurial know-how thinking, well, actually, if you can if you can solve the problem with the FX and you can integrate that into the accounting, you can probably try and create a financial management solution for the for the super yacht as itself because it's a floating asset, right? It's a floating business. And that was where it came. And and then it was a kind of a, how do you get people to put the data in accurately? Well, the crew have to do that. So how do you make it easy for the crew? Well, we build a mobile app. How do you make it easy for them to integrate it? How do you get the data to be accurate into the app? Well, we get a banking kind of card and you get, you know, we get our own card and that API is in and that means the data can't be wrong. So 
it was then that kind of through myself and I'd love to take um, take the responsibility for it. I've got an amazing team of people and employed some really sharp, intelligent people and good people around me at the start. But we then started to, you know, have that eureka moment thinking, right, we're on something now. We, we showed a few management companies, we showed a few boats and the reception was was positive. And then that's when we, as I say, we had that eureka moment. We go, right, I'm going all in on this. And that's when I just threw everything at it. Money, time, sweat, tears, mental pain, and everything went into volley then. And, and it strikes me that, I mean, inevitably the question as to what were some of the hurdles that you faced in those early days. But the first thing that strikes me is that there are significant barriers to entry among much of what you've described, not least you're not a developer yourself. I think that oftentimes you'll hear stories of anyone looking to break into tech business, you know, don't start without having a tech co-founder or you have all these sorts of stories flying around or, or indeed it's the technologists themselves that build these businesses. The regulatory element to it as well, I would imagine is a feature if you start talking about yeah, FX and you're talking about cards and all these, you know, all these sorts of, so it's, it's not just something you can do in, you know, with a laptop in your, in your underpants in the back bedroom. It's, it's, it's just, you know, it takes a lot, a lot to get it going. So what were some of the hurdles that you would have faced in those, in those early days? Um, it's a good question because I was thinking about this and I was looking, we retained the, the, the original developer, we retained him as our, who's now our CTO and to this day doing an amazing job um, and he's a real, he calls himself an engineer rather than developer and he's, he's so true, you know, he's a real problem solver and he's, he's a really, really bright guy, that's Rob and um, we retained him but you know, I'm I'm a huge believer that if you've got a good product, you don't really need to know it. Relationships is what I think the entire world goes around in business like and I made a, and whether I'm good at it or not, I get told I'm all right, all right which I'm, I'm hoping I am. But we made a real effort to to break in because yachting is also very niche. You know, it's a very kind of, it is a little bit of a closed community. But we made a real effort of, you know, getting in, spending time, spending money, you know, getting to know people and, 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 and doing a good service to the small amount of clients we had, but then spending a lot of time to build those relationships. And, you know, I, I would probably have, if I, if I went and got married tomorrow, which I won't be because I'm already, Married to a lovely partner, Lucy. But if I if I did go and get married tomorrow, I'd probably have forty clients at my wedding. You know, that they've become friends, and I think that's the biggest bit of advice I could say to anyone trying to be an entrepreneur. You know, go and build relationships because because then as well, you know, if there's a problem and the product does let you down at some stage, which in tech it does because tech is tech. And when you saw the the Facebook thing the other week with with even as big as they are, they had their issues. But you know, if you do have a problem with a client, it's much easier to solve when he's phoning you up saying, "Hey, mate, there's a problem," rather than phoning a member of your team and you know, you're a client rather than, or you, you're, a prov- you're a supplier rather than a friend. So I made a real effort to, to build relationships fast. And that's what I think got us to where we are today. And, and how did you build those relationships? Because I think it's all very, I, I agree entirely with what you're saying in terms of the, the lengths that, you know, my experience of working with you, you've been very, very much focused around developing that relationship. But these are busy people whose time is very much in demand, I would imagine, oftentimes would be at all four, all four corners of the globe. It sounds very, in principle, absolutely sounds easy, but I'd imagine it's it's not. How did you go about building those relationships? We did it through, A, I've got a good team who helped me, and B, I would say everyone, I think if you can create an environment where they want to be there, whether that's going out to a nice restaurant, whether that's, you know, going wine tasting, whether that's going, these guys have got such busy schedules, you're right, that just having another meeting in another office, they probably don't want to do. But if you can build a relationship where you are doing it, as ridiculous as it sounds, over a nice bottle of wine or over a beer or, you know, whatever takes their fancy to get them to come and to, to come and be there. You know, I, I think I think there's a real there's a real knack in trying to to build that friendship and you've got to create an environment where they want to be. And that's what we did. And the Superyacht space is a great community in the fact it's very social. We went to loads of social events where they were and we just worked really hard to, to meet the right people and then be good to those people. And I think if you treat them fairly and you make them a partner rather than a client, they don't mind helping you out. And and it was just a it was a snowball effect. You know, we built really good relationships, and then they gave us more relationships, and then that feeds that feeds more people, and you just spread your your web as wide as possible. And as the team grew, we did it. There was more than just me doing it. I mean, yeah, I do a lot of it, but there's more than just us doing it. But um, but yeah, we we just created nice environments, or or we went to the the main events that were in the superior space. And with the benefit, so you launched. Volley, was it 2015, 2016? That sort of... 2016, October, we bought the company and set it up. And we launched, I think, our first client signed in June 17. So five years on with the benefit of hindsight, if you look back to those early days, is there anything that you would have done differently? Yeah, what would I have done differently? You know, you're going to employ one bad egg as you go along, which you can't help. Picking people a bit more carefully. We've got an amazing team now, which I'm very proud of. But that's took time to build. 
taking long term money rather than short term money. You know, we took we took one in particular bad investment from the wrong person that turned out to be toxic and can and can hold you back for a little bit longer than you want to be. And yeah, probably just thinking a little bit of a long term project rather than a short term project would be a, a probably a, a bit of one of my thoughts. I think if I had to do something differently. And what have you? Yeah, you know, I think that it's consistent with many a conversation with entrepreneurs, but you know, it's a roller coaster, that's a cliche, but it's the lot of ups and downs. What have you enjoyed about the experience? Yeah, I've listened to a few of your podcasts. I think we all, the CEOs go through the same pain, right? I think we all have mental health problems at times. And um, we all, um, I think I said to someone the other day, the analogy of the CEO just driving a Ferrari and having half a million in his bank or 50 million in his bank and doing nine till five, that, that analogy definitely, I can clarify, is not right. It sounds a cliche. I've really enjoyed the experience. I've enjoyed learning because, as you rightly said, I know nothing about tech and it's an opening line with half the clients we meet. I don't know the software. The team would laugh about it. I have read-only access to our software link because they're scared if I log in that I might you know, delete someone's whole year account. So I've enjoyed learning. I've enjoyed the process. I've enjoyed building a team. You know, We went from myself and two or three people who, who founded it with me to to now being 40 or whatever we've got now. I love creating a really good working environment. We put a lot of effort into that, you know, a lot of social stuff for the staff. We've got a pick and mix station in the office. We've got, we've got beer keg. We've got, you know, a bar in the office and stuff trying to create a working environment. And I've just, I've loved seeing the product change. I've loved seeing the fact that Volley has gone from analogy. I was using the first yacht show we went to. Everyone said, Oh, what does Volley do? Where are you from first? And then what do you do? Whereas now it's kind of, oh, my, either we use it or my friend uses it or I've heard a lot of good things and now we're over 500 boats that use the system. So I've loved to see the growth of that whole kind of acorn. So we're far from a tree yet, but, you know, we're certainly bigger than acorns. So I've loved that whole process. And I love I love learning. You know, I've made loads of errors in, along the way. I think surrounding yourself with good advisors is really important because certainly if you don't know, you, if you know, if you don't know the world of business, I went from, you know, a lot of people go through a business school or they go through university and just simple stuff that, that we all take for granted I, I probably didn't keep on top of and um, I didn't hold myself accountable for. But yeah, I've loved the whole process. The whole process has been really enjoyable. Alongside the, the three o'clock in the morning waking up, how are you going to pay the wages and stuff? But if, if I, it's probably easy to say now, but at the time when we couldn't, you know, raising cash, you know, paying wages, I, I've generally been sat there on a Friday morning going, we've got to pay everyone today. How are we going to do it? And again, that's where the relationships come back to building great partnerships with your clients, you know, and getting forward payments. Or, you know, we, we've had clients that have helped us through the pain, which to the outside world, they probably don't see that. But it's been a process we've come through and we're now out the other side. We're fully put. I've got an amazing set of investors in Magenta. I've got a great chairman, Simon. And yeah, I think surround yourself with good people would be one of the big key points I'd say as well. Was there a point at which you thought, we're really onto something here. I think, you know, you must, you go through that roller coaster that we've referred to in those, particularly in those earlier days where you've got that belief in your product and your proposition, you're taking it to market, you're convincing people that this is the right solution for them. But, you know, there's never quite that sense, again, consistent with just about every entrepreneur with whom I engage, that they ever kind of go, yeah, I've made it. You know, they, never, they rarely sit back and kind of go, yep, job done. It's, it's constantly, you're constantly moving on to the next thing. But was there a point at which you thought, Actually, not that you've, you know, not to my point, not suggesting that you were sat there thinking, yeah, I've got this cracked, but actually was there a pivotal moment where you thought we're onto something, this really could, this really could succeed? Yeah, I think there's, a, there's been a few moments where we, you know, signing certain clients where you think if they're using our system, you know, this must be, this must work, right? Because you do have that painful moment where you go, does this actually work? And the other clients happy with it. There's one testimonial, which I can't name, but I got a testimonial from a tech billionaire that blew my mind away. And that, that's one of the pinnacle moments where I thought, crikey, we, we are onto something. But you're rightly so, you know, we I still think we are 20% of the journey through what Volley can be. We're, you know, we're doing one in, in the space we're in, we're growing, we haven't cracked vol- we haven't cracked yachting yet. I think we are industry leader, our market leader, and we're certainly, I think, the go-to product now. But we're still nowhere near finished as a product in yachting, and we still haven't cracked, you know, we're still probably only servicing 5% of the yachting community because it's a big old space. But um there's so much more we can do. There's so there's yeah, we're, we're 10, 20 percent of the way through what body can achieve. But that's exciting, right? You think actually, you think we've come this far, but actually, there's there's 80 percent we can we still got to go. That in itself, allowing for the three a.m. moments of itself is you know that that in itself is exciting. What does what does the future look like for volley? 
more verticals. Um, I think there's a clear plan. We have to continue to improve the product for yachting, which we we, we need to do. Um, and the family office space that comes alongside yachting. You know, at the end of the day, anyone's got a yacht's probably got planes and houses. We're now putting our foot in the door there. But then other verticals you've probably seen. We've just released Volley Music, which is a whole a whole new vertical that we've entered. Same problem. You know, if you've got um, if you imagine a boat floating around the world, that's no different to Coldplay floating around the world. The band they've got. Or not float fly around the world as a band, but they've got, you know, hundred crew, band members that all need to take care of their financial spend and the financial expenditure and got to run a budget and how do they get the accurate data against the budget, et cetera, et cetera. So it's exactly the same problem. So there's a whole bunch of film TV, there's a whole bunch of verticals that are untapped that we believe our product will work. Now we may be wrong and we may tread our foot in the in the door of those verticals and, and be wrong and it and it doesn't work. But I think there's certainly a lot of scope for the product to expand. But at the moment there's one clear path of the business and that's kind of focus on yachting and, and continue to improve it because we're very lucky to have the clients we've got and we want to we want to make sure we keep them so that's that remains the one focus but yeah we're we're scratching the surface of where we can be i think which you're right is exciting you mentioned the um influence derek was it derek i think you made mention of who sponsored you through your tennis derek barnett yeah derek barnett and the influence that he had from you know from a tennis perspective from a business point of view has there been someone that stood out as perhaps being significantly or as equally as influential if you like from a career perspective no, do you know what? Not really. I mean, I, I listen to a lot of stuff. I listen to your stuff and you know, I listen to a lot of the podcasts around the world of business. There's no one really that jumps out at me that I like to try and take snippets from some. And I, if anything, I've learned a lot of the bad stuff. So if I can avoid all the bad stuff that I've already learned and already dealt with, then hopefully that eradicates a lot, provides more good stuff for the future. But there's no one really that, that has... I mean, yeah, I've watched all the films, you know, Steve Jobs, uh, one bit that he said about... um Bless him. He, he came out with a comment where, when he delivered the product, he wanted to create a salesperson in every customer. Stuff like that, you know, analogies that I've always, I've always tried to to follow. Sell the problem you're solving rather than the product. You know, simple stuff like that. We've got a load of quotes around the office actually that I give to to the team um, that we try and kind of live by as a business. But there's not been one individual I don't think that's kind of I've sat back and gone right. I'm going to base my life on him. I, I, I tend to try and take snippets of different people. So there, you mentioned Steve Jobs. Who else do you admire? in uh, in business or indeed in life generally this sounds so twee but you know what? even though my dad's not built a tech business and not service you super yachts, i still bounce 99 percent of my ideas off my dad probably you know i'll still ring him and say i'm thinking of doing this dad and he might not even understand the question but he'll give a caring answer at least you know <laughs> and and the new the new investors and and also the management team here like i i probably i don't know whether i'm a, whether this is normal for a ceo or not but i i'll openly go and sit in a room with the team downstairs and go, right, I think they're doing this. What do you think about it? Whether that's a, a, a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know, but I tend to involve them as much as I can in some of the stuff. And the current shareholders, the, the current chairman's a great guy. He's, I call him the Jewish or Bunny. I think he's the oldest guy I know. Bless him. He'll kill me for saying that, but so it gets out of bed at six o'clock saying, what deal can I do today? He's legendary. I love him. And I, I ring him a fair bit. We have a weekly call at nine o'clock every week or 9.30 every Monday. I bounce a load of ideas past him. But yeah, I tend to just but be like a sponge you know i know again it sounds twee but try and listen to bits and pieces from everyone so what is it that that drives you in creating happiness for my family would be number one winning sounds <laughs> winning you know i want our company to be the best that we can be and and the number one in each vertical we enter and winning certainly comes from tennis i know i've, I've always said a lot of people have said to me actually about they'd always employ a sports person ex professional sports person because they've just got the mentality of a work ethic and b I want to win and and yeah just creating a great environment for the businesses that's what su- success to me would look family first my wife and two amazing children followed by and obviously my parents followed by winning probably well maybe creating a nice environment for the staff secondly <laughs> and building a team and making them you know I'd love to make them all as a team we should if we all succeed that'd be great and then um and then yeah third would be just winning just the obsession of needing to win and, and is that, that's that whole sort of nature nurture debate, but is that, I, I'd imagine even from what you've described as to your childhood, that that was something that was very much an inherent part of who you are from a very, very early age. Yeah, I'm terrible. Lucy kills me now with like, you know, Jack, my little boy will, you know, play football with me or play, and I'm, he ain't, he's not winning anything until he's good enough to win. It's just the analogy like that I have. At least I tell him, to, he doesn't get it as he's crying and walking the stairs that when he does beat me, he'll know he's beat me for the right reason, right? But, um, but I'm terrible. Like, I have to win. I have to win. Which probably, that, I don't know if that's good or bad, but that's me. And, and how does it affect you when you don't? I guess, you know, from a, from a tennis perspective, you would have had matches that you've, you've already alluded to, the matches that you wouldn't have won. 
there'll have been situations I'm sure in business inevitably there are where you know there's a client you don't win or they make you know they they make a, they turn a different direction there are naturally life is a series of wins and losses if you wanted to caveat them in that way how how does losing affect you completely and I've, I've had many losses certainly in the town I've had many losses but I think going back to one of the people I think when you said about who was your poster boy in medium life and even to this day Michael Jordan I think unbelievable and I've watched every episode of every TV show that I've had I used to walk out to tennis court with his music I've been fortunate enough to get to know him a little bit and spend time with him and be on a golf course with him but um, I think you know he's, he's he's got a load of statements out there and one of the ones I read the other day which is not him but was relevant is that I think it was I've never lost money I've just paid for lessons and I think once I've gone past sulking for 10 minutes if I do lose which every I think every sports would do I think you then just have to pick yourself up and say right what can I learn from losing that client or we have a pretty good retention rate, to be fair. But if we did lose a client, I think once you've gone past, you've got to learn from it and try not to make that mistake again. If you make the mistake five, six times, then you've got a problem, right? If you make the mistake once or twice then and you learn from it, then that should be the sign of the fact you're improving as both a person but also as a business. And I can't let that Michael Jordan, playing golf with Michael Jordan or meeting him on a golf course go without... Because, because again, from my perspective, he would be a huge icon. He's the best. What, what was he like? What was he like? And what was it about him that would make him the best? Everything about, he can't lose, by the way. He has to win everything, that's for sure. But he, you know, they say you should never meet your hero. I was lucky enough that when I met him, he was just everything you'd want him to be. He was generous. He was thoughtful. He was kind. He was super bright, amazingly talented. It's quite funny, actually. One of the guys on one golf course, someone said, you can't, he can't play off the back tees because, you know, it's 7,000 yards at golf course. I remember thinking, did you just tell the greatest ever sportsman probably to not play off the back tee? Like, <laughs> but um, but yeah, he's um, he was for me undeniably the best person that you could want to spend time with, or one of the best people you could want to spend time with. I'd imagine if a comment had been made such as that, you know, not you can't play off the back tees, he'd have found every reason to play off the back tees and prove that person wrong. Yeah, he's a he's an amazing person, and if if you've watched that last dance, you can see that you know he. You can see he single-handedly, you know, dragged everyone around them as talented as they were. And they, if they were 85% of the best player they could be, he made them all 100% of the best person they could be. He was, yeah, he's a special person, a special human. Yeah, I must have watched that that series uh, at least two or three times over. I think there's, uh, he's a phenomenal character. Lucky you to have met him. Yeah, he's a good guy. So in terms of what inspires you or who inspires you, you've mentioned Michael Jordan. Who else might be out there that you found to have to have inspired you or, or what else out there inspires you? Probably just the, the, the same things that, you know, what you want to, what does success look like? You know, I'm inspired by my family. I'm inspired by winning. It's driven by winning, probably more than inspired. But I mean, yeah, it's inspirational. You meet different people every day, right? And again, going back to your point, you, you, you try, I probably don't draw from one person or one thing. I try and draw bits from multitude of places to, to, to get through who inspires me or what, what inspires me. I don't think there's any single object or single person or single thought that, that would be my main inspiration apart from just, as I say, providing for my family and, and this company being the best it can be. And so what about away from work? Is there an away from work? How do you unwind? How do you relax? I don't think there is when you're in the time of life that I'm in, to be fair. I love my golf. I was very fortunate enough to play a lot of golf when I was playing tennis. I mean, we used to go and play 54 holes some days because we, we had time to play, but um, I love my golf being at home with the kids and, and Lucy's probably the a priority, but you don't, you know, you don't get time. You know, my, my team here will say, why are you emailing me at 3am in the morning, boss? But, you know, it's because you're awake and you're working and you forgot that you've not replied to one. We're now currently working off American time, a lot of clients in America. So, you know, they they wake up a lot later than we do. So I'm, I'm, you can have calls at 10 o'clock at night. But I think at the moment, there's no away from work other than family with a little bit of golf where I can do and yeah, we're just 100% driven, both me as a management team and the board as a company, we're just 100% driven on making this the best we can be. So do you still pick up a tennis racket? Sounds boring that, doesn't it, when you think about it? <laughs> no, not at all. Do you, do you still play tennis? Never, <clears throat> never, ever, ever. I get asked a bit, but no, I just, I guess it's a sport you can't play socially, really, unless you, like, you have to be with someone else in tennis that you can socially play with at a similar level, I guess. So it's down to A time, B, my fitness lead is horrific, like, running up the stairs I'm now knackered the days of me being an athlete are long gone although I did do well at Crystal Maze with the team still don't like me talking about but I was good at Crystal Maze but yeah the um, I guess it's down to A lack of fitness B 
struggle to find someone to play with at a decent level and, and see time, to be fair. I never play. I should do, really. And it's the most popular question I get. Do you still play tennis? And it's the one that probably I should do more about. I think I can understand. It's a part of your life, isn't it? It's a chapter of your life. So in terms of, of reflecting back, what advice would you give 21-year-old Ian Flanagan? Um, 21-year-old Ian Flanagan, what would I give them to do? Number one, enjoy the journey. Even the bad times, you know, you, you hopefully are going to come out. There's always, you know, time heals any problem, right? It's, there's always good and there's bad. And enjoy the journey would be my number one bit of advice. And again, referring back to what I said before, think long-term, not short-term. I think I got too involved in the rat race of needing to make money fast and needing to do things quickly and needing to grow things quickly. When actually, you realise that your business career, whether you start at 19 or whether you start at 35, whatever time you start that business career, there's plenty of time to do it. So probably just thinking long-term. I took too many bad decisions, I think, in the early days. And and probably only this year, I've really got it, got it right with the right set of investors, advisors and stuff around me. So, yeah, I, I think I'll just say to everyone, just think a bit more long-term and short-term and enjoy it. Which I guess is consistent with the question as to what advice you might give any aspiring entrepreneur with a dream. You know, that taking that longer-term view, that long-term perspective, isn't always easy to achieve, I think, in business. Because, you know, that sense of short-term, long-term wins can be difficult. Is, is that, you know, that's a consistent theme throughout? Yeah, and I guess you're right. I guess, you know, you need some short-term wins to probably fund the long-term aim, I guess. But yeah, yeah, just think more long-term than short-term would be. And and also, when you say about following your dream, just follow it because they're all possible. Every single person that's been successful has started a dream on a, you know, on the whole phrase of back of a fag packet or a little piece of paper or, you know, back of a beer mat. All those dreams have started somewhere. They've all started from the garage, all the... Again, all the, the regular photos you see of Jeff Bezos in his garden, in his, in his garage, sorry, in his garden, and people above the you know spare bedroom. So yeah, just don't be told that it can't happen because it can, and that's in sport or business, right? Because all the sports people, like we said at the start of this, start of this chat. You know, my teacher, Mrs. Bellis, I remember her name, said you won't make it in tennis, and your forehand technique's not good. And that's why when you're 13, and two years later, she should have watched me on centre court. So just don't listen to people that haven't got the foresight, I guess, or the ambition that you have because. As long as you've got faith and you've got ambition, you can definitely get there. And, and in terms of what the future looks like from your perspective, you talked about, put words into your mouth, but you know, making volley, what, what do you believe it can be as best as it can possibly be? You've got, you've got a, a long road ahead. There's a, a big runway to go, go and explore. But what, what does the future look like? I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think, I think there's genuinely 80% of, of a roadmap ahead for this business. And whether I'm there for all 80% or whether, you know, I'm, I'm only here for some of it or all of it, et cetera, or part of it, I don't know, but I think this, I think it's a great business. I think it can go a long way. And yeah, I think we just need to continue doing what we're doing now and continue to work hard as a, as a, as a whole business and continue to have, like we just said, positivity and the faith in the product and the faith that we can go and enter the verticals. But volley is my 100% my focus. Family and volley are my two focuses for the next five years, whatever, whatever that ends up to be. And then we'll, we'll revisit then. And if I've got, I'll either have no money and I'll be fired for being a bad CEO or I'll have 40 million in the bank and I'll be sat on a beach. Like one of the two. <laughs> but not playing tennis, right? Not, not, on a, not on a beach club playing tennis. I won't be playing tennis. <laughs> no, I won't be playing tennis. Regardless of whether I've got 40 million or no money, I won't be, on a, I won't be playing tennis. Maybe on a golf course. Maybe on the golf course, yeah. Maybe on the golf course. And, and I have to ask the question as to that I can make all sorts of assumptions as to why volley without trying to set draw cliche analogies to tennis, but was that the inspiration behind the behind the name? It was, yeah. Someone that was working for it at the time said, let's play on your tennis to get background. So I didn't want it to be about my tennis, so that's why we spelt it wrong, hence it being spelt V-O-L-Y rather than V-O-L-L-E-Y. And it's only recently, because I was trying to get away from the tennis, as you've probably gathered already, you know, as lovely as it is, and it's a massive part of my life, and I should probably be more proud of what we achieved, but... Yeah, I was trying to get away from volley. And to be fair, it's more the team here now that are like, we should talk about it more. We should be proud of what you did and et cetera. So yeah, it came it came out the tennis, definitely. Well, I think it's I think it's a really interesting, you know, to your point as to being proud of what you've achieved. Even when I was struck earlier when you made mention of the 30,000 people who play tennis, whatever the number might have been. But I would I certainly, you say that it's a big number. And I can completely understand that when you're in the sport and you're starting from 30,000 and looking at wanting to get to world number one and the journey that might, be ahead of you to achieve that but that's a that's an incredibly small percentage of this you know population on this planet that actually get to 
do something they love at a professional level. So, you know, it's an enormous achievement. And actually, I think possibly because I'm a bit of a sports fanboy, maybe that comes across, but I actually think it becomes a virtue that you, you know, for you as a, as a, for you in business, it's back to that relationship piece. It gives you a, you know, not only do you have a wonderful product, wonderful piece of software, industry leading, great opportunity in that regard, but actually the story behind it makes for a really, for many people, I'm sure, for a really interesting story. Yeah, you're right. And, I, and as I say, I, I've started to talk about it a bit more and started to make more people aware of it because unless you literally went on Wikipedia, you wouldn't know about it. But like you, you completely right. We were with a big music client yesterday on the phone and it turned out he was obsessed with tennis and then, you know, remembered the name and, and before he knew it, it's opened a door and before he knew it, you got more business going out of it, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, I probably I probably don't use it enough, but it's because it is a talking point. It is a story. And I, and I do underplay the achievement of what we did. I say we because obviously I couldn't have done it on my own without my mum and dad and coaches and sponsors and stuff. So um, it wasn't just me, it was just me on the court. But I think you are right. It, it definitely opens doors. And so where, where can people go to find out more about, is it it's volleygroup.com? Is that the URL? Is that right? Yeah, it's volley. So it's volleygroup.com. I should know this. I'll give you the link to put on your thing. It's volleygroup.com and then there's volleymusic.com as well. And yeah, we, it's another funny story. So we, we actually even went as far as calling it Volley for a period of time. So it wasn't so obvious a Volley, but just for everyone's right, it's now called Volley, which my head of operations down there will go nuts because she calls it Volley still. She's the one person that calls it Volley, but everyone else calls it Volley. So yeah, it's volleygroup.com and it's volleymusic.com, I think, are the two current websites. Fantastic. Ian Flanagan, it's been great to speak with you this morning. I really appreciate it. I wish you every success, continued success with all things volley group music and any other pursuits that might uh, might be ahead it's a fascinating story i really appreciate your time good to be speaking with you no thanks so much for your timely thanks for having me and um yeah i hope hope the listeners half enjoy it at least fantastic great stuff cheers in thanks lee take care Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say. Any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.